What's up, Joe? What's up, everybody? We all love the story of overcomers, stories of those who were able to prevail and achieve success, even though the odds were stacked against them. Today's guest, Kurt Vericchio, has such a story, which he lays out in honest detail in his new book titled Behind in the Count, My Journey from Juvenile Delinquent to Baseball Agent. It is a remarkable story with the power to inspire and provide hope. And you'll hear it right here on Sports 360. Today on Sports 360, I have uh, with me Kurt Vericchio. Kurt is the author of a new book called Behind in the Count, My Journey from Juvenile Delinquent to Baseball Agent. Uh, Kurt, it's great to have you today on Sports 360. How are you? I'm doing great, Jeff. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. I'm doing fantastic. And I'm really and truly excited and, and grateful to have you on the show today because I read your book, Kurt, and, you know, I, I do believe that it has the great potential to be a help to so many. So congratulations on on your new book. I really think it's a great work. Well, thanks, Jeff. I appreciate that. And, you know, I'm kind of proud of it myself, um, and I'm hopeful that it will make the impact I believe it will make. Yeah, I, 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 and I'm with you, and, and I think it will. And um uh, before getting uh, into some of the details of your story, Kurt, I, I, I would like to begin first with dealing with the why, right? What was the purpose, your purpose for, for writing this book? Well, to be honest with you, the main purpose was just to make an impact and really try to help change some lives, um, especially for those kids who are in the position that I once was growing up as a juvenile delinquent, and to also provide some guidance and, and maybe some um, some hope and support to the adults that work with those kids. Um, so it was important for me to kind of get the message out there and to, to see if we can change a couple of lives. And that's fantastic. And, you know, for me, Kurt, I've known you for a little while and, you know, it's funny, you know, we all, we kind of know where people are, but many times we don't know how they got there. And to read this book and as the, Subtitle says, My Journey from Juvenile Delinquent to Baseball Agent. Uh, it really opened my eyes uh, in in a lot of ways to your early life. And you, it was an early life that was marked by all kinds of challenges, poverty, violence, abuse, multiple incarcerations, group homes. Uh, and you ultimately overcame all of that to where you are today, a lawyer, agent, um, husband, father, uh, but that's your end story. How difficult was it to maintain hope in those early years, though? It was extremely difficult. I mean, uh, you know, it was one of those situations where every time you, uh, you know, you got up in the morning, you were, you know, I was thinking about survival, uh, and there was always obstacles, and, you know, it was, um, um, it was difficult, but I just had this sort of in intrinsic desire to do something more, you know, to be kind of 
be more than a literal number. You know, I've always been an inmate number or case number, et cetera, and I didn't want to be that anymore. I wanted to kind of prove some people wrong and, you know, try to work my way outside of the cycle. And before you got there, though, and I just want to touch on some of these early years, right, where you describe in your book in in some real detail. And and by the way, Kurt, I applaud you for your transparency and honesty, right? I mean, you really go into some areas that I believe it took a lot of courage for you to do so. So, uh, you know, congratulations to you on that, because I think it it will resonate with people. Um, it will resonate with people, the honesty in which you uh, describe your early life. And that included a life of crime, right? You even said it, right? I was a juvenile delinquent, breaking into cars, breaking into homes, stealing money, stealing property and those types of things. But you, you, you said a word earlier, it was for survival, right? So, and this is at nine, 10, 11 years old. Can you give us a glimpse of the mindset that you had at this time that leads you to do what you had to do in order to survive. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's really, and I write about this in the book, you know, when I was younger, it was about survival. It was about where am I going to sleep tonight, uh, about my safety, uh, it's about food. And um, as I've gotten older, obviously, kind of um, worked my way into what I consider to be a much better position than I once was, uh, those needs have, have changed. But, um, but growing up, it was just about, day-to-day survival and trying to um, figure out a way for me to survive if I was on the streets for a couple of days. Um, I didn't turn to crime because I enjoyed it or because I wanted to. It was more out of necessity, um, and it was um, you know, something I had to do in order to survive. And, and um, again, it was, for me, the the reason I was always running away was because of the abuse I sustained at you know, my, my home. So, um, again, it wasn't like I wanted to do it, but you start to do it. And then unfortunately, uh, things become a habit and things got out of control quickly. Sure. Sure. And, and as I, as I read through the book and I may be wrong on my count, but overall I, I counted five stays, five different stays in what you call juvie, right? Juvenile detention. Yeah, that's correct. Right? That's and, correct. Yeah, so you have, and this is by eleven years old. Yes, I was. Um, I was seasoned, unfortunately, by the time I was eleven years old. Right. Um, so you had five different stays in in juvie, three different group homes. By my count, again, that's by my count. Uh, by the time you were eleven, and you, you you told a story, and you tell many stories that just resonate. Uh, they resonated with me, but one of them was spending your eleventh birthday in lockup. First of all, how tough was that? It was extremely difficult because, you know, growing up, we didn't have a lot of money and uh, we never really celebrated birthdays. Um, but this one in particular was, was really tough because I was sitting in an isolation cell on my 11th birthday. Nobody knew it was my birthday. And part of the reason is I didn't tell people it was my birthday because when you're in that situation, when you're incarcerated, sometimes you don't want to give out personal information because people would use it. Um, to their advantage and against you, but I I kept it to myself, and it was, uh, but it was it was difficult because you know here I was 11 years old, the life, uh, you know, my life was going on, and you know behind bars, and and uh, everyone else was, you know, <laughs> enjoying their their time out, and 
uh, I, I just think it was it was especially difficult for, for one reason or another. That particular birthday was one of the most difficult for me. Sure. I mean, as, as a as a child, right, as 11 years old, right, it's about being at home with your family and ice cream and cake and candles and maybe a party, some presents. Right. It's not about being in an isolation cell. Um, but you also recounted, though, that on this day you had a prison guard. It was a prison guard named Vernon who somehow knew it was your birthday and uh, helped you. Um, celebrated. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, Vernon was really the first time in my life that someone actually showed some true compassion to me. You know, he didn't care about where I came from, but he understood it. He was more concerned about where I could go, and and he saw potential in me. And I think, um, you know, for him to understand it was my birthday and understand that it could be impactful if, if he were to just you know, you know, he could have said just happy birthday would have been enough, but for him to come in and, and you know, do what he did and, and spend time with me on that day and, um, you know, teach me a couple things uh, about what I should and shouldn't be doing in juvie because there's some stories in there um, that I referenced. But, um, you know, it was uh, it was qualities and attributes in an individual that I kind of kept with me to this day. And uh, I like to think that, you know, I have some of those attributes in me and uh, it was it was uh it was really i don't know if he understood it at the time um but it was very impactful on me and something i've remembered forever mm. and and in recounting the story you you wrote a line kurt and there's several lines in the book that i actually took out a, a piece of paper and a pen and i wrote them down right they they, they were that meaningful to me but one of them was uh, in in recounting the story with Vernon, you said breaking through to another person can be as simple as seeing them. And it's a simple statement, but I think it's very a powerful statement that spoke to me on a number of levels. But tell us, what did you mean by that statement? Breaking through to another person can be as simple as seeing them. Sure. Well, you know, up until that moment, you know, uh, people always saw me as you know just another juvenile delinquent or a derelict or a number and uh you know he saw through all of that and he saw the potential and an opportunity he saw a lost child obviously but he also saw the opportunity and the potential and he didn't really care about the labels and i think sometimes what we do is uh you know in in life and even in our profession you know we always label guys you know this guy's a org guy or this guy's a juvenile delinquent or this guy's you know going to go in jail and you got to see beyond that you know i think everybody has potential uh some of us just it takes a lot more work to get to that potential right but to, to me seeing the person for who they are and trying to find some something uh positive that they can you know they can bring to the table that they can change their life or whatnot. And I think that's the key is, you know, we always want to look at a person, he's labeled this or she's labeled that, let's move on. But I don't do that. And uh, and I don't do that because Vernon did that. I like to see if there's uh, just noticing people, just recognizing them for who they are. And, um, and then who knows where that goes or how that can help an individual. But I think that's the key. Stop, you know, looking at people and labeling them and coming up with preconceived ideas and notions and actually see the person for the potential that they have. So that's something that for you, you incorporate now personally and professionally and 
trace back to this encounter with 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 Vernon? Yes, absolutely. And I, I employ that in, you know, my life and my kids do that as well. You know, we always I talk to them about, you know, seeing people for who they are. Don't worry about, you know, whether the kid's popular or not popular or whatever. Just, you know, the people um, each individual has something they can contribute. Uh, some of them discover it earlier than others. Some, unfortunately, don't discover at all. Um but I think if if we start looking at people more for who they are and seeing them, then I think it's uh, you know instead of accepting a label, I think it just goes a long way to to help that individual and then you know society overall. Yeah, I agree with you a hundred percent, and you're right. I mean, we do have a tendency sometimes to just put a label on someone, sometimes without even talking with them, right? I mean, right. We learn exactly. a little bit about them. We learn you know about their position or what school they went to and all of a sudden we have these preconceived notions about who they are. And so that really resonated with me and I appreciated that, 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 that comment um, or that, that, that statement that you wrote. Another, another story that resonated with me and it, and it, it made me laugh a little bit. Um, and it was your time at, in a group home, the Butler family, they were an African-American mm-hmm. family. Mm-hmm. And you know, you um, you said that the Butlers attended an all black church, and yep. you know I'm African American, so I you know, and I'm in the church, and so I know what you're talking about with the the singing, the dancing, the enthusiasm, and all that. And you're about ten or eleven years old, and you're with the kids, but you couldn't keep up with the cadence or the rhythm or the footsteps or whatever. Um, and you're the only white kid in the church. And then you went home that afternoon and you wanted the son who was around your age to teach you. And you spent hours learning how to sort of catch the rhythm. And I really was, I was impressed by, because again, you're, you know, you're a tough guy, right? Your nickname right. was Baby Gator, right? I mean, so. That's right. I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> Baby Gator trying to learn steps. I'm like, that surprised me. What was it that led you? Because you could easily say, I'm not going to do that. But you're in this different environment, but yet you wanted to, you know, to catch the steps, learn the steps or whatever. What what was it that motivated you to do that? Well, it was a few things. You know, some of them were selfish and some of them were, you know, wanting to give back. But the first thing was I didn't want to embarrass myself. I was pretty embarrassed going up there. Um, and, you know, I, I I know the church wasn't judging, but, you know, I was kind of like a dry heave walking up there. So I, I figured I needed to fix that. Uh, and then I wanted to see if I could do something that I'd never done before. You know, I was like, all right, I'll try this. Because at that point, I was trying to change my life. I just wasn't didn't have the right tools. But I was trying to to do things differently and put myself outside of my comfort zone. And then the, the third reason is uh, because I wanted to do something positive in exchange for the butlers taking me into their house. I thought, you know what, this is important to them. And they were really, um, you know, God fearing religious people. They were great people. Uh, and I felt, you know what, they opened their door. They, they invited me into their house. Let me see if I can do this because it's important to them that I, that I do it. They didn't tell me it was important, but I could sense that they would take pride in the fact if I was able to go up there and fit right in and mesh in with the church. So to me, those were kind of the reasons why I really wanted to do it. And um, I did. I got my groove on after the uh, the next <laughs> the next church, <laughs> next church session. <laughs> That's all right. You know, you said a couple of interesting things there, Kurt. Um, and I don't know where to start, but let me start with this one. 
you, you mentioned that you were trying to make the change. You didn't have the tools. Mm-hmm. And that's very interesting because there's a process to this thing, isn't it? Right. You know, this thing being yes. any kind of change or turnaround. And sometimes it's not apparent on the surface to those on the outside, but internally, it sounds like you're saying you were internally trying to do it, just didn't know how, but perhaps people on the outside might not have been able to see it. Right. Um, right. Because you had these other behaviors. And so I find that to be interesting. And the other thing you said was your thought process. And I was I was impressed in reading the book that at nine, 10 and 11 years old, and maybe it was because of a matter of survival, that you were able to process things, you know, look at people and situations and size them up and make certain decisions, determinations and judgments that were pretty impressive for someone so young. Yeah. And, and, you know, and it's funny you bring that up because I always, you know, I, I do believe that there is a process, you know, and I had the desire and the will. I just didn't have all the tools. And some of those tools were, you know, people who were reaching out to me because juvenile delinquents, you know, they're like, they're prideful. Um, you know, they do have a lot of issues, but they think they can solve them themselves. And, and the reality is if you have someone reaching out to you who has something to offer you, um, that's a valuable tool that could help you through that process. And I think, um, you know, that was, you know, important for me was I learned pro- the process of survival as a kid. And I think a lot of juvenile delinquents and foster kids, they go through a lot of different things. And if they can understand and just sit back and they don't understand now because they're young, but we need to, to explain to them the importance of, you know, what they're doing, the process they're going through on a daily, on a daily basis is extremely valuable and that is translatable to any profession you go in or any life, you know, life lessons or whatever. And they're getting, they're getting uh, a, an education in developing a game plan and sticking to a process. They don't really understand that yet, but we need to communicate that to them and let them know that that's just going to help them down the road. The key is you just got to stay positive and, and, and stay motivated and stay hungry and keep working hard and understand it doesn't happen overnight. You got to, it takes some time, but if you stick with the process, uh, it's going to work. So that's kind of how, and I didn't know this as a kid growing up. I didn't understand this whole process mm-hmm. stuff, but as I was writing sure. the book, looking back going, Oh my gosh, light bulb went off and said, that's why I think this way, or that's why I do things this way. Um, so uh, yeah, I think that, that the whole process and game plan thing is important for, uh, for kids to understand and for adults to, to, you know, encourage, uh, the kids to learn from their experiences. Yeah. And I was going to say that last point too. I, I think it's something important for the adults too, right. To understand right. that it's a process and, you know, sometimes we may not be as patient with someone um, because again, as you said, the desire is there, but the know-how isn't right. The tools, right. Correct. May, may not be there. To it. So um I think that's a good a good point for everyone involved. Um, so, Kurt, you know, you again, the juvenile delinquent stays group homes, and then you ended up in a foster home uh, with uh, Joe and Sandy Evancho. Um, right, and uh, this is when I think things started to come together and it wasn't overnight. It wasn't overnight. You right? you still had mm-hmm. one or two episodes where you ran away. Um, but you know, ultimately things did change here. 
uh, with, with Joe and Sandy. But you described something in the book that I read, Kurt, and I'm telling you, man, it, it, it spoke to me on so many levels. And that was the time at dinner when you spilled milk, right? Mm-hmm. And they right. wanted you to clean it up and you refused. And right. it led to an altercation with Joe. And he said something along the lines of what's the matter with you? Don't you know, we love you. And your words that you wrote in the book, if I can quote it, you said, no, I know you don't. If you did, you'd hit me, mm-hmm. man. I tell you that statement hit me in, in such a way, but, but just tell us what, what was going on with you at that time in your life that that was your thought process? Well, you know, my whole life revolved around violence and abuse in my house um, and out on the streets and in juvenile hall and in group homes. I mean, it was, um, you know, it was it was a part, unfortunately, uh, woven into the fabric of my life at the time. And I associated love with tough love and tough love you know, it's not like a football coach that makes you run wind sprints. It's more tough love was physical beatings, you know. And, you know, I would – if my brothers would beat me or something, they would say, well, you know, we're doing this because we love you and we have your best interests. And I say, okay, well, you know, you're young. Your mind's getting shaped, right? Uh, and then when I went to the Evanchos, um, they didn't they didn't believe in physical punishment or reprimands. They stayed true to their beliefs in unconditional love, support, and firm guidance. Now they took away certain things, you know, they take away allowance or whatever. That was their way of disciplining. By the way, a lot more impactful than getting slapped upside the head is when someone wants to take your allowance and your money you earned. That's mm-hmm. and today I guess it would be the cell phone, right? So right. I mean, there's <laughs> there's other right. ways to do it, but but. Um, I just thought that these, you know, these people kept saying, you know, Sandy Joe kept saying, "Hey, we love you, we love you." I'm like, "Well, no, you don't, because if you did, you would, you would hit me because that's what my family did, and that's what, you know, you know, people did my entire life." And so they realized too, it was kind of a, a deep-rooted um, issue at the time, and um, it really opened their eyes. And um, I didn't know it at the time, obviously, until much later in life when I was discussing it with my foster mother. Um, but it was sort of one of those seminal moments for our you know, foster family. So, Yeah. And again, it was one of those um, statements and one of those accounts that really hit me. And, um, uh, and again, we're going to talk about it later, Kurt, about how folks can get their hands on the book, because I think people need to read this book. I really do. Um, and full disclosure, I've known you for a couple of years, right? We've worked together right. in the past, mm-hmm. but I didn't know your story, right? Which is right. part of, part of, you know, even why I'm doing what I'm doing, why you're doing what you're doing, right? Because everybody has a story, right? And that's and that story can add some value. And so, um, yeah, I, I, that, but that particular account, Kurt, was, it, it still just stays with me even now and just, you know, speaks to me on so many levels. Um, but, you know, you did begin to turn around in, with, with Joe and Sandy academically, Right. You graduated high mm-hmm. school, discovered a little bit of acting here, right? Theater arts and, 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 yep. and what have you. And um, attended Florida State University on a scholarship. And then that first summer after Florida State, you had what I what I think you call too a relapse into a life, not a life of crime, but into some criminal conduct. And I got to tell you, as I'm reading the book, I'm thinking, okay, here we get to the happily ever after part. I didn't see that coming, right? I didn't see that coming. 
Right. What happened? What well, led you to sort of relapse at that point? Well, pure and simple, it was greed. You know, I felt that having those material things would elevate my social status um, at the time, uh, after my freshman year in college. And I thought, well, if I get this stuff, then, you know, it'll it'll help me uh, socially. And I was dead wrong, actually. It had the, it had the opposite effect. Um, and, and why did I include that in the story was because I wanted full transparency. You know, you brought up transparency when we started the interview. It was important for me to let the readers know that, look, I, I'm not perfect. I, I had a transgression when everything had seemingly turned for the best. The reason I had the transgression was because my values got distorted and I compromised my integrity because of it. And I, be, I think people need to know that because you know, I, don't, I didn't want to write a book that says, oh, I did everything perfect. There's, there's, I, I wasn't perfect. Um, but you know, I continue to work to be as perfect as possible, but that's, that's very difficult. So I wanted to be transparent, let the readers know that, hey, especially some you know, juvenile delinquents, if they've worked their way out of a situation and they have a backslide for some reason or another, um, it's not the end of the world. Chalk it up, move on from it. Hopefully you don't have a transgression like this, but if you do, you can learn from it and move on. And that's why I included it because I, I know that, um, again, I think it would be more helpful because more than likely uh, these juvenile delinquents and these foster children or these at-risk youth, they're going to have some setbacks, whether it's a fight in high school or you know, something's going to happen. How do you get over that? How do you get through it? You just kind of keep persevering and you hope you don't have the transgression, but if you do, then be prepared to to move on from it. So that's why I included it in the story. But again, it was just the greed, um, pure and simple. That's that's you know, and and just I slipped on my on my values. Mm, yeah. Now um, you did eventually, you know, graduate from from Florida State, and you, you got a master's from. University of Texas. And why don't you tell us a little bit about how you broke into the sports industry? Because there may be some young uh, people out there, young professionals, uh, college students, law students. Uh, and as you know, right, there's so many people who are interested in breaking into sports. And I thought the way you got into sports initially, but more importantly, how you got your job with San Diego uh, mm-hmm. was, was very telling. Uh, why don't you share a little bit uh, with us about that? Yeah, sure. So after uh, graduating from the University of Texas, well, actually just before I graduated, we had to do an internship. And um, I did an internship with the Kansas City Chiefs, thanks to one of my professors who had a contact there. I interviewed and I got an opportunity. And I stayed on and worked for the Kansas City Chiefs in 1995 uh, and, and promotions and marketing. And from there, um, you know, they they didn't know that that they would have enough money to include me in the budget for the next year. So I thought, okay, I better find a job because I have a master's degree um, at that time, staring at like 25,000 in debt for, from the master's degree. But I, I obviously didn't want to sit around an intern for two years. Um, so I started sending resumes and cover letters all over the country and it kept getting rejections, you know, and, and it's the standard rejection. Hey, we got your resume. Uh, we, we like your credentials, but we don't have an opportunity. So, Without giving out too much of the book, um, there was, uh, <laughs> you know, right. the Padres, the Padres did, uh, I, I happened to cross their letter one day and I said, thanks, but no thanks. And I said, you know what? I'm tired of waiting for my ship to come in. I'm going to row out and meet it. And I'm going to call this team up and I'm going to tell them that they need to hire me because they didn't sell 
a million tickets last year, and I'm sure I can help them sell a million tickets. Um, and and then if they said no, then I'm right back where I started. So it's not a big deal, right? So I, I picked up the phone, made some phone calls, and eventually interviewed with them and got the opportunity and you know worked in their sales department uh you know, doing season tickets and skyboxes and corporate groups. Went to law school while I was there, and then when I finished, um, I, I left the Padres to study for the the California bar. And um, you know, once I passed the bar, fortunately, I wanted to stay in sports, and I decided to become an agent. There was an opportunities that I could have worked with some front office um, teams, but uh, the uh, it wasn't right. We had a family and everything, and my my wife's roots were here in Southern California, and you know it just made sense at the time to to start um, you know w- working as uh, as an agent and trying to find that opportunity. But yeah, that story in the book is really about you know perseverance and people stepping outside their comfort zone. And I think the only way you grow is when you step outside your comfort zone. You take a chance, um, and that's what I did, and it worked out. Um, now I've taken chances that haven't worked out, but certainly when they do work out it's it's life changing and that that was life changing so but if you were to tell me to give some advice if there's any aspiring sure people uh-huh. wanting you know number 1 is be willing to relocate anywhere if you can you know if you're married and you have and you have children it's a little more difficult um don't be focused on your uh, your starting salary be focused on the opportunity and then also be focused on the organization or or group you're going to work with and what you can learn from them uh, and again, it's a process. It's a long process. Don't think about, you know, two or three years from now and how much money you're going to be making. Think about 15 or 20 years and the impact you can have and where you may be. And I think if kids think about those things, um, it, it, it'll help them get through this arduous process of finding an opportunity in the sports profession. Yeah, that's good advice. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. Now, now you mentioned your wife, uh, your wife, Amy. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you, Kurt, you know, you wrote some nice things in the book. You said some nice things in the book. But the thing that is at the top of my list is something your wife said. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and this is, you know, you talked about you at you at the law firm, right? Mm-hmm. You had a fledgling sports law practice on this or sports practice on the side, representation practice. That's right. But the firm gave you an ultimatum one day out of the blue. You either mm-hmm. give up your sports law practice or you no longer have a job here. Right. And it's and you were in your car. You're on your way in, I think. And and it seemed to me you were leaning toward the practical. You had a wife. You had children. And, well, I have to keep my law firm job because, you know, the mm-hmm. sports representation practice was sort of, you know, getting off the ground. And uh, you called your wife and, and you called Amy and she kind of sensed where you were going and said, yeah, I'll make it work somehow. And she said, yes, I know. And that's why I want you to call that firm back and tell them to go to hell. I read that. And I almost started shouting. I, I mean, that was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was. Uh... Amy's my hero. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> How did yeah. that make you feel at that time? Well, it reaffirmed that I that I married the right person. You know, I've always been one of those. Um, I, I didn't grow up with anything, so for me, you know, continuing my life with little or nothing was fine because that's what I was used to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew one thing: I, I knew I wanted to to, to be a, a sports agent. I knew I wanted to stay in the sports profession, uh, and it was important to me. And she sensed how important it was to me, and. Um, 
you know, I think what it did is when she said that, like I said, it confirmed that I married the right woman, first of all. And then it fueled my desire. I'm like, okay, well, she believes in me this much. I got to really work harder and make, you know, make it all work out for the family. And so, uh, yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people love that chat. I think that's chapter 38 because um, <laughs> we, we joke about it because when, when our friends are reading the book, we're like, well, when you get to chapter 38, let us know what you think. And, you know, <laughs> that's the Amy <laughs> chapter. But no, she's she's awesome. And, and uh, you know, she's you know, she's successful in her own right. I mean, she's very successful and she, she's uh, she's just the, the perfect woman for me. And, and uh, like I said, that was early in our in our marriage and she just reaffirmed it. So, um that was it was awesome. It was an awesome moment for us. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned something there. You said that was chapter thirty-eight, and I don't want the 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 listeners to get the wrong idea. Thirty-eight chapters. Listen, there are forty-two chapters in this book, I believe, mm-hmm. but it is a fast read because they're not long chapters. Some of them are just a couple of pages. So, right. I one of the things I enjoyed about this book was that it was a page turner, right? Because very short chapters very crisp writing. I felt like almost like I was in a movie. You know what I mean? I mm-hmm. just wanted to see what was going to happen in the next scene. So, right. for, so for anyone out there, if you heard 38 chapters and now you're turned off, don't be this. It, 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 and I don't know how you did. I mean, congratulations to you and those of you who, who worked with you on this because the short chapters, uh, it really works because it keeps you, locked into the book i read this in well, like two and a half settings and i was done sittings and right. i was done <laughs> so uh yeah so a- anybody out there don't get turned off by the number of chapters um it's a it's a very compelling fast read um, right now in the last chapter of your book you 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 talk about where you are now and 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 look you're a successful you know agent um a lawyer, still have a, a law practice. Um, you're married, still married to Amy, and you, you're raising mm-hmm. your family together. So, I mean, when you look back at your life, I mean, it's almost a, it almost it is a 180, right, from where you started mm-hmm. to where you are, to where you are now. And um, you you wrote in the book that right now, given your station in life, that you find that your purpose is to add value to other people's lives. Um, mm-hmm. And that's another thing, Kurt, that you wrote that resonates with me because that's how I feel as well. And I don't know if it's a, you know, you get to a certain stage of life type of thing, but I tend to think not. I think it's more something that's on the inside of you. Uh, How do you go about, what are some of the ways you go about seeking to add value to other people's lives? Well, you know, I do this across the board. I do this for, you know, my clients. Um, I do this for my family, for friends, um, for just people that I meet all the time. You know, I tend to see people for their potential, not for the labels others apply. And, and if someone's willing to change or contribute and they're willing to put in the work to effectuate that change or contribution, then I'm willing to help if I can. Um, you know, and it comes to helping people improve their lives. I don't really care uh, about their gender, race, political affiliation, uh, sexual preference. None of that stuff matters to me. It's just if they're if they're trying to improve their life, that's going to help and and improve other people's lives. Then I want to contribute. I want to help and and be there. And and it's it's really indiscriminate in who I help because I just think everybody has an opportunity um, to contribute and to help others at some level and it's just the way i'm wired um you know i'm just maybe it's through the processes that i've gone through and 
you know, for the Sandy and Joey Vanchos, my foster parents, and for the Vernons that helped me, you know, those things stuck with me. And, you know, I feel it's, 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 it's an obligation, but one that I love to reciprocate and to try to effectuate change through others, um, that have, that ask me to help them out. So, um, and it's something that I embrace and I love doing and, um, and I'm going to do it as long as I can. Well, good for you. And I, and, and I do believe, Kurt, that this book um, is part of that in terms of adding to people's lives. Um, you know, you took the time to write it um, with the honesty and transparency that we've been talking about. And I really do believe that this is going to be a life changer for many. So um, in, in, in a few minutes that we have, why don't you... Um, tell people how they can get their hands on the book. Again, it's called Behind in the Count, My Journey from Juvenile Delinquent to Baseball Agent. Uh, Kurt, how how can someone get their hands on the book? All right. Well, the book's available on Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, iBooks, Kobo, all of those, all of those uh, dis- distribution channels. But if you want to learn more about the book, you can go to behindinaccount.com. That's www.behindinaccount.com, and it's got the social media links. It's got where you can purchase the book. It's got a book summary. It's got the preface on there. Uh, it's got uh, author bio. So it's got all the information you need. So if you go to behindinaccount.com, that's the spot to go to check it out, and then you can purchase it through whatever you know. If you do digital, that's available in all those stores. And if you want to purchase a hard copy, you have to go through. Uh, right now, it's Amazon, but we're working on getting it into Barnes and Noble. And um, I just received word, possibly Walmart, but I don't know if that's going to be happening anytime soon. But those are some of the developments going on. So it's available out there, and I'd love for people to get it. And then the other thing is if they get it, I'd love for them to write a review on goodreads.com or on Amazon or wherever they get it, uh, because I think that's going to help spread the word. I wrote the book really to to effectuate change, and the only way I'm going to be able to effectuate change is if I get it into the hands of people who can use it. Uh, so I would encourage people to write the reviews and stuff too. And um, you know, if they have questions – they can always email me and I'm happy to interact with people and discuss the book. Well, that's great. And I'm going to write my review today. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely Perfect. going to do that. So, um, Kurt, it, it really has been a pleasure to catch up with you again and to talk to you about this new book. And again, Behind an Account, My Journey from Juvenile Delinquent to Baseball Agent by Kurt Verricchio. A great book and Kurt, a great really a great time talking with you today. So thank you for taking the time to join us today. Hey, thanks for having me on, Jeff. I appreciate it. And, um, you know, I've always thought uh, highly of you. I know you're a man of integrity and you're very well respected in the circles in which I uh, operate professionally. So uh, keep up the good work, buddy. And, uh, you know, look forward to seeing you uh, maybe at the winter meetings. Yeah. Not before. Yeah. I hope so. And and thanks for the kind words, Kurt. I appreciate that as well. So uh, once again, thanks, Kurt, for coming on. All right, Jeff. Thank you. Have a good day. Take care. You too. What you heard today from Kurt Verricchio is just part of his amazing story. To find out more, I encourage you to buy the book, or at the very least, check out his website at behindinaccount.com. Kurt's story and 
most importantly, his willingness to share it will transform lives for the better. I really enjoyed talking to Kurt today, and I enjoyed talking to you too, so be sure to stop by next week for another episode of Sports 360. And please, feel free to subscribe, share, and like us wherever you're tuning in. My man Scully has the day off today, so I'll be riding on the groove line tonight. (laughs) You know nothing about that. But I love you anyway, and I look forward to seeing you next time on Sports 360.